Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001. You just heard intro music from Max Russo from the class of 2020. Today, we talk with Kelsey Wolf, class of 2013, English teacher at Sam Houston High School in Arlington, Texas. We're going to find out how competitive horse riding in Illinois led to a unique opportunity to compete at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and how Kelsey began her path as an educator through the Teach for America program. Joining us today is Kelsey Wolf from the class of 2013. Kelsey, what do you do? I am a teacher at a high school in Arlington, Texas. Um, I teach English three and four. Specifically, I work with our highest need students as an intervention teacher. So Texas is a long way from Winfield and Carroll Stream and all of that. How do you find yourself in Texas? So all throughout uh, middle school and high school, I've always ridden horses. Even now, I still ride, not competitively, but uh, just for fun. And the college I went to, Baylor University, is one of about 15 universities that have equestrian as a Division I sport. So when I was in high school, one of my main goals was to get a scholarship to go away to school and to be able to continue riding and have it funded by someone else other than myself or my parents. So that's how I ended up in Texas was because Baylor offered me both academic scholarship as well as athletic scholarship for my four years there. So I think a lot of people don't probably make the connection of competition and horse riding and all of that. Could you maybe explain like how does one prepare? Because it's one thing if you're, let's say, a cross country runner and you, you, you think about you know, stretching and, you know, all diet and all, all these other things like, you know, carving up the night before. Um, but when you're, when you're horse riding and you're doing equestrian, you have this massive animal that you have to, you have to, you physically have to be ready for it. But then how do you also um, tend to getting that symbiosis with the animal to be able to do what you do? Yeah, so it really depends um, because college riding is so much different than just having your own horse and or even just taking lessons or leasing or owning. Um, and the reason it's so different is because at the collegiate level and there's some differences between NCAA equestrian and being on like a club team. I was an NCAA Division One athlete, so I'll be talking about that. Um, but essentially you don't have any time to really get to know the horse. Whenever the day starts, the day of the competition, um, it's like drawing a horse's name out of a hat. You know your horse, you can watch them warm up. And then when it's time for you to get on, you get on, you have four minutes yourself to warm up. And then after those four minutes, you're going in the show ring to actually show. So the main way that you prepare for collegiate equestrian at the NCAA level is riding as many different horses as you can and getting a variety of experience with different types of horses. So you want to be able to ride the young, dumb, super green horse that doesn't really have any training. And then you also want to be able to ride the super nice, finished million dollar horse that um, 
is is pretty simple. So you want to be able to ride a spectrum of those animals, and that what makes you most um, what's the word most attractive to colleges because they want to see if you can handle any type of horse that you're given without having much time to get to know them, build that bond, or know their quirks. How you just really perked my interest here. How do you? <laughs> How do you know you're on a million dollar horse? That's what I mean. Like, what, like, does that, it, how does that, what does that look like? Um, it looks like a very nice animal. I know that it's hard to explain without like seeing side by side comparisons. Um, but really it's, it's going to be when you get on, like you can immediately feel, especially if, if you've been riding and you have experience with horses, um, you can tell if a horse is green and has minimal training or if a horse has higher level training, already has a pretty big show career under its belt and how much experience that horse has. Uh, uh, so when you're, so you, you then get a, a full ride scholarship to, to go to Baylor. And so once you arrive at Baylor, what's it like to then be an equestrian athlete at the school, what's the radius or range by which you guys traveled and competed? So it, it kind of depends on like what, what role you play on the team. So equestrian teams tend to be really big. So upwards of 60 girls, um, since it is a women's sport. And the reason equestrian even came about to begin with was it was created to help um, the off to offset the male to female ratio of student athletes. So it's like specifically in relation to title nine laws. So even though our team is so big, typically less than 12 girls actually show. So for me, I was responsible for a lot of the <clears throat> behind the scenes work, a lot of barn care, barn management, schooling horses at home, because that was really more my forte than actually showing. And that's how I grew up. Um, I grew up at a variety of like mom and pop barns. I was not riding the million dollar horses. I was the one bringing along the young green horses and, and giving them that experience. So my expertise that I brought to the team was the barn care, the working with the horses that were donated that were kind of quirky, um, and really just trying to be a leader it from behind the scenes. Because with a team that is that large and so few actually show and end up in the show ring, it's really easy to have a pretty harsh divide between the group of girls that are actually in the ring showing and the group of girls that are just on the team and or, you know, doing stuff in the barn. So I really worked hard to kind of bring everyone together and make both sides mesh. So where, so when, how did you guys travel? Like where, where was the, like, so you were, you were in, was there a division so that like, would you go up against, does the division mirror that of like the football and um, baseball, basketball divisions that Baylor is in, or are, are there, is it a different conference and how far did you guys travel? Yeah. So it, 
It, it depends. So when I was a student athlete, we had four schools in the Big 12 division that had equestrian programs. Then the SEC had their own schools that had equestrian teams. And then there was also a handful of schools that they didn't all belong to the same conference. So they actually made up their own conference um under the NCEA. So it's like you have the NCAA, which is the governing body of all college athletics. Then within that, there's the NCEA, which is the National Collegiate Equestrian Association. And so they're the governing body of collegiate equestrian within NCAA. Because the reality is the NCAA doesn't really know anything about equestrian as a sport. So they've had to bring on this other organization to manage it. So when it comes to traveling, it just depends on where we're competing. So we could be going as far as California or South Carolina. I didn't travel much, so I didn't get a lot of those experiences because only the the 10 to 15 girls that were showing were the ones that got to travel unless we were close. So typically if I traveled, it, we, it was because we were going to Oklahoma because it, it's you know not that far of a drive from Texas, so we were able to bus over there, and they would take more of the team. Um, even just traveling up to Dallas and Fort Worth, we always played SMU and TCU, usually twice in the regular season. Um, and then for nationals, we actually hosted them. We had a really big event center in Waco that we hosted nationals at, so we didn't have to travel for that. And then when we had Big 12s, we would travel to whatever Big 12 school was hosting. So um, it's kind of confusing. But in normal season, you ride the horses of the school that you're traveling to. But in for Big 12s and for nationals, every school brings a set of horses. And then that way it, it levels the playing field. So like I always traveled for Big 12s and Nationals, so that could be as far as Oklahoma or as close as Fort Worth. So just to be clear, you don't you prepare the horses that someone else would ride, not necessarily your own team. Correct. Wow. You know, that's really interesting. Uh, I would imagine there's a lot of an honor code in that, that you would make sure that you have, you know, horses are healthy and well-tempered and all that in order to kind of make sure that everyone does have that kind of uh, level playing field, as you had said. Oh yeah, definitely. And there's, you know, it's not foolproof and there are issues and like they do do drug testing at big 12s and nationals to try to enforce that. Um, And there, there's other ways that like if a horse is acting up or if it's too fresh or not behaving well that the both coaches from both schools can um, agree to remove the horse from the playing field. But, you know, of course, for that to happen, something has to go wrong. Someone has to file a complaint. So, you know, for the most part, it's pretty fair. But, you know, there's always going to be the little things that pop up. Now, are nationals in the same place every year, or does it is it move around? So the past like five or six years, Baylor had signed a contract to host nationals, um, mainly because we have in Waco. There's a really big event center that is close to campus. It's close off the highway. It's easy access. Um, 
I'm not sure about going forward. I know this year with COVID, everything was canceled. Um, but historically, Baylor has hosted them. That must have been a really big leap to leave West Chicago, Winfield, Carroll Stream, uh, DuPage, Western suburbs of Chicago to mm-hmm. come to Texas. What was the um, what was that move like for you? It was looking back. I can't believe I did it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I was brave. Um, yeah, but it the it was culture shock. Um, I mean, Texas is super different, and the longer I'm here the more I realize how different it is. Like at first it was, you know, everything was so new. I was in a college town. Um, I think I was definitely sheltered from some of the um, Texan isms because I was in a college town and there were so many transplants. And plus most of the girls on my team, my teammates were not from Texas either. So it, it didn't feel as rough then because I was surrounded by so many other people who were not from Texas. But um, since graduating and, and moving from Waco to Arlington, which is about an hour and a half north of where I went to school, I've realized just how different the South is from the Midwest. So, you know, part of that too is that Texas is just a massive state. I mean, it's it's huge, right? And so Baylor, how far is Baylor, Waco, from the next biggest town that we know of in Texas? Um, To get to one of the cities, you're looking at about an hour and a half either north or south. Um, Well, really, hour and a half north will get you to Dallas or Fort Worth. Um, And... Even though it's the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, what they don't tell you is Dallas and Fort Worth are practically an hour from each other. (laughs) Um, The other big city would be Austin, which, but Austin is closer to two hours south. Wow. It's just, it's such a massive state. So, so you, you begin your college at Baylor, but you weren't initially going to get into education. Did you know what you wanted to get into, what you wanted to study first? I really didn't. Um, leaving high school, I toyed with the idea of maybe marketing. Um, I knew I wanted to work with people. I had become interested in education, but I always told myself I would never be a teacher. And then I realized how ridiculous that was. I was like, I want to go into education, but I don't want to be a teacher. What? Um, so as I kind of had that realization, that's when I started exploring the possibility of going into teaching. I did, um, a summer internship. I did it, um, two summers while I was in school and it was a nonprofit that placed teachers, um, in classrooms. It was a nonprofit that focused on helping first generation college graduates, like from the time that they're in middle school to the time that they'll be graduating college by giving them like extra programming, counseling support um, through college and access to summer programming to prevent summer learning loss. So that's where my role came in. And that was my first experience with teaching was when I was a summer teacher for that nonprofit. What And so what were some of the things that you did initially in that uh, program that kind of gave you the the itch to want to be a teacher? What were some of the early 
um, success stories that happened that kind of led you on the path to want to be a teacher? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this is super stereotypical, but it was 100% the relationship building with my students. Um, like that, that was a thing, like I enjoyed the content, um, and I enjoyed learning the techniques behind teaching, but it was the, the smiles and the thank yous and the having the positive relationships with my students that really told me like, okay, this is super fulfilling. And I really enjoy like the feeling I have walking away every day. Like, I feel like I'm doing something important by, you know, working with kids on a daily basis. So you, you had success in this summer program and you did it for two summers, then you were able to then roll that into, or how did you then find Teach for America? Yeah. So I actually heard about Teach for America before I heard about the summer teaching program. Um, they are both AmeriCorps programs. Um, the, the summer program is called Breakthrough Collaborative. And Breakthrough Collaborative, like I said, it is um, nonprofit through AmeriCorps. Um, Teach for America is also a nonprofit, also an AmeriCorps program, but they they closely partner with each other um, on a lot of things. So a lot of breakthrough collaborative alumni end up going to Teach for America. So I was kind of the opposite way around. Like I had discovered Teach for America when I was looking through a actually it was like a career magazine um, at Baylor, and it had like a list of like upcoming um, like panels and workshops you could go to. And there was a recruiting session for Teach for America. So I stumbled across that when I was a sophomore and I met with the recruiter and was like, I'm just a sophomore, but what can I do now to start preparing? Um, And the reason I went the Teach for America route was because when I went into my undergrad, I was a communication major, a Spanish minor, and then I was in the honors college as well as an interdisciplinary um, portion of the Honors College called the Baylor Interdisciplinary Core, which is kind of like AP, but for college. It replaces all of your core classes and it combines history, social sciences, English, and since it was Baylor, combined religion, um, all of those into some core classes. And so long story short, heard about Teach for America. Teach for America referred me to Breakthrough did break through my two years. And then when I was a junior, I applied early to Teach for America and was accepted. So from the time that I was a junior, I actually knew what I was doing um, after I graduated and had that job stability, like leaving college. How how does placement get secured then? So what school, how, how, how does that, how does that work? Yeah, so since I applied early. Um, there was about six months where I didn't know. Um, and then from there, I think it was at the start of my senior year, they asked us to submit like our top 10 regions that we'd like to be placed in. So it's a combination of what your preferences are as well as what the needs are. So with Teach for America, the mission and vision is that one day all children will have access to an excellent education. So of course, they're going to want to put you where the highest need areas are in our country. Um, When I was an incoming core member, Dallas-Fort Worth was one of the top 
areas, um, that was a high need. And so I placed that as my first choice and I got that as my first choice, both because it was, um, high need and it was my first choice. So you, so you graduate from Baylor and then you know that you're going to go directly into the teach for America program, uh, and at the Dallas Fort Worth. So what do you do to then, uh, prepare yourself to go into, uh, the high need school? Like how, how might you compare, um, let's say that school versus let's say West Chicago or the schools that you grew up with? Yeah. Um, so it's funny you say that because West Chicago was actually at the time, I don't know if you have ever, if this is still the stereotype, right? Like I haven't been there in eight years, Mm -hmm. but I know when I was there, a lot of the neighboring high schools would joke about West Chicago and they would call it ghetto and they would Mm -hmm. call it like that. It was a bad school. Um, and I hated it because I, I loved my experience at West Chicago and that's what made me first decide that I wanted to go into a high need school was I was like, why are these other kids from other schools that are more affluent talking so down on the school that I really love and that there's great people here and great teachers and a great community. Um, and looking back, I was I laugh at it because I think when I was at WeGo, I've actually gone back and looked it up. We were like 24% free and reduced lunch. Mm -hmm. And like the high school I teach at is 90% free and reduced lunch. Um, And so really that that's always been my driving force of going into education is trying to address the educational inequity that we see in our school systems. Um, So the main way that I prepared was really just really honing my communication skills, Um, being able like to communicate with people who don't look like me, don't talk like me, don't have the same experience as me. And I think um, my time at West Chicago prepared me for that because our high school was so diverse and had so many different people from different walks of life and different backgrounds. and that's what I loved about it while I was there, which made me knew, which made me know that going into a school that was more diverse and had varying levels of student need would be a good fit for me. So what did you teach your first year? So my first two years, which is my first years were with Teach for America, I taught seventh grade reading and writing in Fort Worth ISD. Um, and then... From there, I moved to Arlington ISD, still at a high need school. Um, oh, this is kind of interesting. So my first two years teaching, I was actually at a school that had just been reconstituted. So in Texas, what that means was a school had been on the failing list do, uh, for state testing for too many years. So they were basically forced to shut down and hire all new teachers and all new administrators, but with the same kids. So the school that I was at went from Forest Oak Middle School to the Leadership Academy at Forest Oak. So that was a huge eye-opening learning experience in itself of being at a school that was that high stakes to where if we did not improve our standardized testing scores within that year of my first year teaching, they could have shut us down again. We didn't. We we took our school from the rating of an F to the rating of a B. So like we made it, we did it, we survived. 
Um, but it was a huge challenge of like not only being a first year teacher and being fresh out of college and not being an education major, but add on top of that, the pressures of like standardized testing and needing my students to meet certain scores was like a whole other beast in its own. I I would imagine that that's got to be a very tough needle to thread, which is um, you, you had mentioned that you ha- had such success in building relationship with relationships with students, um, but then you need them to then do well on a standardized test, which, you know, frankly, is not the best assessment tool <laughs> by which you continue to build trust and relationships mm-hmm. with students as well. So how how are you able to kind of build that trust to get them to perform so well to get a school in one year to turn from a, a an F to a B is um is is really impressive. How did that happen? Honestly, lots of hard work. Um we were also unique in the fact that we had an extra hour in our school day for students. So I had students from like 7.30 to 4. Um, and then on top of that, teachers and staff had a, had three extra hours of professional development every week. So my day-to-day, uh, it, was, it was very challenging. Um, I did not have work-life balance, like easily working 60 to 70 hours a week. But you know, those two things definitely helped us be able to raise our scores as much as we did because we had these kids for a longer amount of time. Um, I had my students for 90 minutes every day. Um, But the other thing I think that really helped with building that relationship and trust despite having such a heavy testing focus was trying to help my students see like, where they were currently at, um, so making sure they they understood what their scores meant, and on an even like deeper level, like showing them like their reading levels and not having um, conversations that made them feel bad about them, but having conversations about their reading levels. I was like, hey, like how are we going to get this up? Like you're going to have to read when you get to high school and and beyond and if you want to go to college. And so like helping them see the real life application. Um, and of course, acknowledging that standardized testing sucks. Um, <laughs> like it's not fun. And like making sure that they knew that I knew and recognize that. But the, the thing that I always kind of propose to my students is like, we have to beat the test, right? Like they try to trick you on the test. The test doesn't, doesn't tell you how smart you are or how successful you can be, but it's the very base barrier to you graduating high school. Because in Texas, I I don't know what Illinois current state laws are, but in Texas, they cannot graduate if they haven't passed certain tests. Um, So like really using that as a conversation starter of like, how are we going to do this? Because we know you got to graduate high school. So if you got to graduate high school, you got to graduate, you got to pass these tests, you know, and how, how can I support you to get there? And what initiative can you take on your own to get there? 
No, that that's just a. I imagine, like you said, that just seemed like that was so much work. So that that went on for two years. Mm-hmm. Now, did you then switch schools after that second year? And or uh, so does that mean that Teach for America is a two year allotment, and then after after that, then you're you're able to then seek out a new school. How does that work? Correct. So Teach for America is basically a two-year commitment. They put you in your placement school. They want you to stay for two years. But um, think of Teach for America as like the placement program as well as like training and support. They're not actually the ones who employ you. So Teach for America will partner with a certain school district or charter and then place people there. And then that district or charter will actually hire you. So you're like a normal full-time employee. So once you finish your time with the core, you're just considered an alumni. So once I finished that time, I resigned from Fort Worth ISD. I already kind of knew I wanted to go to Arlington. It was closer to where I lived. Um, I had some friends who taught in Arlington that I met after moving up here and they were really happy with the district. Um, It's a little bit smaller than Fort Worth ISD. And so I just wanted to, one, experience a different district, um, as well as I had a really good opportunity to move up into the high school level and get to teach juniors and seniors, which, you know, I mean, junior year was like when I had you was when I really fell in love with English and like started to consider becoming a teacher. So it was like all kind of came full circle for me. Oh, that's, that's great. Well, thank you for the kind words. I think, yeah. uh, think teaching Gatsby has a lot to do with it. So that's uh, hard hard not to fall in love with English. That was kind of my gateway literature was uh, Gatsby. So it's hard to deny that. So, all right. So now you get to go to high school. Um, Walk me through like some of your favorite uh, books or lessons to teach at the high school level. Now let's talk shop. Yeah. So I love teaching rhetoric. Um, Like that's what made me fall in love with English. Like, honestly, when I look back at it is rhetoric and speeches. And I guess that just shows I'm a nerd <laughs> um, because I I as well, there's nothing I don't watch that I, I am not breaking it down no matter what. I'm always mm-hmm. thinking about the rhetorical situation and trying to figure out the motive. So, oh, goody, goody. Uh, so continue. Well, so that that's by far my favorite thing to teach. Um I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of our literature um, because it's, I love my team that I work with, but they love teaching the classics. And I have to say, I'm just not super into the classics. Like I want to read contemporary lit that is applicable and culturally relevant. And I think the classics have their place and like do bring value to the table, but I think they need to be paired with contemporary books um, and like things going on right now, real world that have real life application, because in my opinion, that's what really brings students in. And it that's when it becomes like that two way learning rather than just, you know, the one sided like teacher teaching something that students feel like they can't apply to their lives. Um yeah, I always felt that that was the strength of interdisciplinary, where you it was never just about the book; it was about everything that could 
surround it, prop it up and extend from it or to it uh, as well. That's so I, I always uh, found that to be the most enriching part of, of oh, approaching. Totally. A well, and that's, that way. Uh, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no I, I finished. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was just going to say, and that's what I loved about my time at WeGo and like in all of my AP and honors classes in English and history was my teachers did such a good job at connecting what it was to like real world and like really taking a close like like analysis of it and really considering like what is the social impact of this like what does this say about our country our world like how are we addressing it um because you know like I said that's kind of what brought me to education was realizing and looking at like the educational inequity that we see around us when comparing schools and saying, okay, how do we fix this? How do we make our schools better? So all kids have this education. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's spot on. And, you know, and, and like you were saying before, I think the, you know, the first step to all that is, is rhetoric, because you have to understand the, the basic foundation of human communication and what allows the message to be received and then reciprocated and, and, and the bridges built uh, from there. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So now you're, you've also, um, you know, we're, we're all teaching in this challenging year uh, in 2020, 2021. What has, what is your school been like during uh, this year? So um, we've been, in person since about October 1st. Um, We started the school year virtual. Um, We're currently running on a hybrid schedule. So basically students can choose to be either fully virtual at home or they can choose to be hybrid, which means they come on a rotating basis. So they usually are there two or three days a week. Um, we're also, we're, we're AB and then with the hybrid, we go AB plus an alpha split. So since our high school is 4,000 kids, we're overpopulated, like trying to keep our numbers down. We have less than 25% of students in the building at a time, which has been, been great, um, in the sense of like, they're keeping us safe. I mean, but it's been challenging in that like virtual teaching is really hard. Um, especially with the position I have this year as an intervention teacher working with our highest need students, our highest need kids also tend to be the hardest to reach and the most truant. Um, so that has brought its own challenges of me having to find creative ways to get in touch with kids, try to engage with them because they don't know me. I'm not their core teacher. They don't get a grade for coming to my class. So again, having to go back to those relationships of like, technically none of my stuff is required, but I need to teach you to read because you're a junior or a senior and you have, you know, a reading level of a third grader. So yeah, it seems like that it's unfortunate that like that, the, the incentives on the student end to come to you, there, there aren't, there's not a lot of teeth in it, but what you're providing them is so essential and important. Right. And so that's been, I mean, like everything this year has had a learning curve. Uh Um, 
you know, that has been a challenge of just like, okay, how am I going to think outside the box um, to get some sort of engagement from my kids? And we have a huge roster. It's I work with myself and two other intervention teachers. And between the three of us, we have about 500 kids that we're trying to hit um, and provide interventions for. And part of that's because it's our attendance is so sporadic. Um, So by having such a big roster, we're able to really have a wide range of kids that we can reach out to and try to engage with. So then next year, will you continue with this position next year? Yeah. um, As far as I know, (laughs) you know, things could always change. But right now, planning on, you know, kind of staying where I'm at. Um, You know, I'm never close to opportunities if they present themselves. But right now I'm thinking, finish out my fifth year in the classroom. I do have my my Master's of Arts in Teaching in in school leadership. And I do have my principal certification. Um, So I do kind of have those as options. I would eventually like to move up. Um, however, I'm starting to float around the idea of maybe pursuing the nonprofit world instead of pursuing a position as like an instructional coach or an assistant principal or a dean. Um, the more I've, especially I've been thinking about it the last three or four months, as I kind of think about what brought me to education, it was, it was the alternative spaces. It was the, you know, summer teaching program with the nonprofit. It was Teach for America who recruits like non-traditional college students to come teach in education without, you know, a ton of training. It's not like I went to school to be a teacher. So as I've reflected on how I got into education, I'm beginning to consider, well, maybe I need to consider pursuing some of those alternative routes in education. So Kelsey, I always end the interview with bits of advice that you could give current Wildcats about success. Yeah. So my biggest advice would be to go for it. Don't be afraid to take the leap. Um, Looking back, like I said, when I reflect on the fact that I've been in Texas for eight years, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I literally just upped and moved. Like I had no clue what this journey was going to bring me. Um, And so my piece of advice would be was like, if you have the opportunity in front of you, but you're apprehensive about like moving away or going somewhere new that you don't know people, um, you'll find your community, but don't be afraid to put yourself out there and get to know people and like join different organizations. Um, But like, just go for it and like embrace it with everything that it brings. You know, there's going to be good, bad, ugly, but at the end of the day, like, sometimes leaving home like just gives you a whole nother world of opportunities that you didn't even know were out there. And I like that part about that you knew though that you would land on your feet because you knew that you would be looking for that new community to support you. You know, that's mm-hmm. that seems to be a very common thread with the interviews that I've conducted with former students that have made that leap to move away from home is that they were able to find uh, new communities, new kind of peer groups that were so supportive in everything that they were uh, now pursuing. So, yeah. wow. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much for uh, this interview today. 
and uh, we'll hopefully be interviewing you soon when you are maybe uh, making that leap to admin or the uh, the nonprofit route. We'll have a whole new set things to new, new things to uh, interview about. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, and thank you for having me. It's been nice to reconnect and. Gosh, my my parents have now moved from Illinois, so I haven't been back in almost two years. So I'm looking forward to our world calming down a little bit and getting it being able to travel again. Yeah, that's that's gonna be that that'll be great. And 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 it's it's interesting like that, you know, just even in your time in Texas, how you linguistically have been able to kind of get into the Texas uh, <laughs> accent too. I mean, like, just like, that's just natural to what you have. Our, our uh, Midwest accents must be so perfectly bland, you know, to you. So <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Sometimes I catch myself saying y'all, I'm like, I need to stop. Like, uh, I don't know. Embrace it. Embrace it. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Uh, cool. All right. Well, thank you, Kelsey. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music, Podcasts, and search We Go Vox.